ברוך השם, you're a bad Jew. שלום. Oh, hey, welcome back to another episode of Bad Jew, the place where there is no such thing as a bad Jew. With me today is Rabbi Levi Begun. Rabbi Levi Begun leads the Culver City Chabad. How are you doing today, Levi? I am doing great, and I'm very happy and joyous because it's a joyous holiday today, Sukkot. Yes, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful time, and I, I really want to learn about it because, you know, all throughout my childhood, it was always fun to eat and schmooze and party in this cool little, what feels like a camping trip, little experience in someone's mm-hmm. backyard. But what does it really mean? What is the real story? That's what we're going to get to today. But before we get into that topic, you are a new guest, which means you have your right of entry onto Bad Jew, which is the Bad Jew four-minute challenge. Are you ready? I'm ready. Excellent. Echad, Shtaim, Shalosh, Yalla. Okay, so my name is Rabbi Levi Begun. Um, actually, I was yesterday uh, finding Jews to give them opportunity to do the Lulav and Etrog, and someone told me that, do you know what your last name means? I said, I think it means a runner. She says, yes, it means a professional runner. She was Russian, and she happened to know the word Begun. So uh, it's a Russian name, and my grandfather from my mother's side is the head Chabad rabbi on the West Coast. He has over 500 Chabad emissaries under him, started out close to 70 years ago, uh, when Judaism was not very much alive on the West Coast, and uh, when he came on, he really started from scratch, and uh, you take a look at Judaism today on the West Coast, that's on my mother's side and my father's side. Uh, my grandparents were the first Chabad emissaries from the Rebbe to the country of Brazil. Also around that time, uh, close to 70 years ago. And I'm honored to be able to have grandparents on both sides, which are leading countries and representing Judaism in such a large way. And I grew up in L.A., Los Angeles, actually more specifically, Shevet Hills you may have heard of it. And I, um, you know, grew up going to, you know, Sukkot, what was the holiday of Sukkot, not just enjoying for myself, but always making sure that someone else can be invited into the Sukkot. Someone else that not necessarily is practicing or doesn't even know it's the holiday of Sukkot, not aware of it. That's how I grew up. And once I got married, uh, that's a story for itself. Maybe we can save it for after the four minutes or another time, how I met my wonderful wife, Rachi. Uh, so after we got married within that year after marriage, we were thinking, what are we, you know, where are we going to station ourselves in life? We were living in Brooklyn, New York, and we always wanted to be able to do that same thing of, you know, starting out in a new community and being able to be welcoming. And that's really what brought us to Culver city. Uh, Culver city has been a place which as a child, I remember going to Sony studios and, and other areas, uh, do, during the holidays, actually, I was just at Palm Court and Studio Real and all other senior living facilities yesterday. And I just, all those memories as a child going back uh, and sometimes being a little scared of the older people, like trying to give touch us and give us a hug. But for us, we were, you know, we were, we were young. Uh, so all those wonderful memories came back. And uh, that's how I grew up. And it's amazing how I am able to be here in Culver City and years later be able to open my own home. And uh, I have to say our Sukkot dinners were full of 
new guests, so many new people that we met just a few days or a few weeks ago, especially over the high holidays. Uh, people that just ha were ha looking for a place for Rosh Hashanah or Yom, Yom Kippur, and we wouldn't have never have found them if not for them looking for a space for the high holidays, which we had at the Shea Hotel, which was wonderful. So we are just continuing all of that um, now and being able to, um, every holiday, think of how we can allow others to join and to celebrate as well. And that's a, Hanukkah is a big part of that. I would say even more than high holidays, how many people were able to reach through the Hanukkah menorah lightings at the Culver Steps, the platform, uh, the, the Shea Hotel, the Ivy Station, the City Hall, and so on. And looking back at our Shabbat dinners, going around the table, people saying their name and uh, how we met them, I would say the number one uh, place is the Hanukkah events. People showing up to the Hanukkah events and that that's it. Amazing. Amazing. You did a great job at keeping that all together so nice and neat. I think it's really inspiring. It's a really, really cool story. And uh, I didn't know that about your name, Begun, that it means yes. runner. That's really, mm -hmm. really neat. You said so, a runner in the Olympics, so not just a the, runner. Oh, okay. Fat. So yeah. a real pro. Okay, yeah. so got it. That's really amazing. And yeah, there's, there's, there's much to learn there. But Rabbi, today's topic, very relevant to this week, is Sukkot. So what is the true story? What is the actual story of Sukkot? Good question. So just the name Sukkot. Let's start with the name. Sukkot comes from the same word as we use for schach, the covering of the sukkah, uh, which means covering. It means to cover. The main part of the sukkah is the covering, although in order for it to be a kosher sukkah, it needs to have four walls and many other different things tied to it. But the most important part is the covering. Why do we sit in a sukkah? Now, it says, if you take a look in the Torah, it says, Ki basukot hoshaftit In Sukkot, God says, please, during this holiday of Sukkot, I want you to sit in a, and dwell in a sukkah because when you left Egypt or when I took you out of Egypt, you dwelled in Sukkot. Now, there's an argument between rabbis if it means literally that the Jewish people dwelled in huts when they were traveling 40 years in the desert. Or is it referring to the Anane Kavod, which means the clouds of glory? There were three things that were gifted to the Jewish people when they were traveling 40 years in the desert. Number one was the, the well in the merit of Miriam, the sister of Moses. Second thing was the manna bread. And the third was the Anane Kavod. Uh, manna was in the merit of Moses. Uh, uh, anane Kavod, the clouds of glory in the merit of Aaron. Now, when they were traveling in the desert, you know, it's not like traveling in Arizona, even 110 degrees. It, it is bitter. It's hard. It's, it's, uh, you can't even live uh, with that heat, um, especially 40 years. They, God gifted them with the clouds of glory of protection that uh, shielded them from, uh, from the, the heat of the sun, protected them from wild animals. It says that even took care of their laundry, everything. They were like little kids that were, you know, nothing to worry about. And um, to commemorate this protection and to really be thankful for it every single year, we sit in uh, in a sukkah, which represents the, the, the that covering the clouds of glory. Um, now, going 
on uh, according to the first opinion we brought that it actually means that they literally sat in huts so what are we really commemorating now it's uh so it's remembering what they uh what how they survived in the desert but also it's showing us how take a look at how they lived back then they lived such simple lives in huts and take a look at how we live now we should be so grateful by just thinking about how they lived and how we are, thank God, you know, having it much easier in life than they had it back then. So according to the opinion that says they lived in actual huts, and that's why we sit in the sukkah, what are we grateful for? We're grateful for the fact that we have so we have access to so much more than they had back then. According to the opinion that it means that the, the sukkah means clouds of glory, then why are we sitting in a sukkah? Because we're thanking God. We're grateful for the fact that God protected us with little children. And, and just to add, um, I was speaking at the one of the Sukkot dinners, how you take a look at a child. If a child is happy, you don't ask questions why you're happy. It makes, you know, they have nothing to worry about. They don't have to pay their tuition. They don't have to go buy food. Everything's taken care of. If an adult is happy, that's when you start questioning, like, what's going on? Why are you so happy, right? When a child's crying, then, you know, does a baby need a, a new diaper or uh, or hungry or maybe, you know, got hurt? But when, you know, why is that? Because a, an adult has a lot to worry about in life. <laughs> and yeah. a child doesn't really have much to worry about in life. And that is exactly how we were under the clouds of glory we were protected by god like little children we had nothing to worry about and that's why when it comes to holiday and the torah tells us Visamachta bechagecha, you should rejoice on the holiday how can you command someone to rejoice we don't know what someone's going through you know we each have our challenges what if someone's having a really difficult life how could you command them to be happy well that's why we sit in the sukkah there's a connection that i want to quickly like, like acknowledge before you continue on to, to this next point that you're going to make that sound really amazing. And that is that Yom Kippur is about, is, is very much about like separating personal and bodily needs, right? right. And, and personal belongings, right? And that's a similar theme that I'm hearing here is that for Sukkot, there's also a, a large element that separates us from our materialistic impulses, from these uh, desires that we have, you know, you oftentimes see friends, if they buy a new car, they want to show off their new car to all their friends. And I, I know this person because I personally just got a new car, right? Oh, um, yeah, you know, it was, it was a wonderful experience, right? But on Sukkot, it's not about having the car. It's about this very humble, um, not, not, not depreciation or downgrade, but I guess a, a, a humbling kind of, how would you describe it? A retreat, if you will into that space, into that mindset of what we were thousands of years ago. A hundred percent. Yeah, that, that is exactly the point. We're elevated to a whole new space. It's like Shabbat, that one day a week, which you kind of forget about if you celebrate Shabbat properly. Uh, all the worries of Shabbat, um, you know, if God forbid someone loses a relative and they bury them just days before Shabbat or even the day before Shabbat, um, they when the moment Shabbat comes in, they have to cut off and get back into the regular Shabbat, the nice Shabbat clothing, and, and as if as if nothing. 
because that's what God wants at that moment. God wants us to kind of detach from all the craziness out there in the world. And as each year passes and more technology and more gadgets and all these stuff come pouring in our brains, you know, it's we appreciate a day of detaching from all that even more. The, the, the crazier the day is and the week is, the more you can appreciate that vacation, that day where you can relax and, and nothing to think of, but just your family, your community, and God. I love that. I love that. And so one other connection that was made from the Yom Kippur episode with Rabbi Jack Malol was mm-hmm. that Yom, there's a deep tie. There's a reason why Yom Kippur and Sukkot is very, very close together time-wise on the Jewish calendar. Why is that exactly? Well, uh, it's actually interesting. It says that there's a direct connection between the tzach, the covering of the sukkah, and Yom Kippur. It says that the smoke, the clouds that were created through the the all the offerings that the Kohen Gadol would do on the holy day of Yom Kippur in the, in the holy temple, that cloud is what the tzach, the covering of the sukkah, represents. So although... Although in the you look in the Torah, the fact that we celebrate the holiday of Sukkot on the fifteenth of the month of Tishrei, the Hebrew month of Tishrei, doesn't have any direct connection uh, to Yom Kippur. But at the end of the day, there is some. There are many hidden and inner connections, and, and also uh, although Yom Kippur is a fine, it is a sealment. So we know in Rosh Hashanah we're asking God to write us in the Book of Life. In, on Yom Kippur, especially at the very end of the prayers, the Ne'ilah prayers, we ask God not to write, but to seal us in the Book of Life. Well, guess mm-hmm. what? It's really still not over. We continue to dip our challah in honey until the end of the holiday of Sukkot, until what's called Hosanna Rabbah, the final day. Hosanna Rabbah uh, is the real, even though things are sealed, it's like the final sealment, the completion. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why there's some extra prayers that recite on Hosanna Rabbah. Re- really, it's one long stretch. And, right. and and we're, you know, the beginning of the year is really a time that we're trying to do all we can to set ourselves up in the right path, on the right, you know, waking up on the right side of bed. And and as we, we spoke on, on, on Rosh Hashanah about the concept, why it's called Rosh Hashanah and not Tehillah Hashanah. If you know Hebrew, you know that if you want to say the beginning of the year, you call it Tehillat. But we don't call the holiday Tehillat Hashanah. We call it Rosh because it's really ahead of the year, not just the beginning. It's not like a January 1st that we party all night and, and fireworks and drink beer and get drunk and then wake up the next morning as if, you know, you know, craziness happened the night before. Right. That's what Purim's for. Yeah, we'll leave that for more. <laughs> Rosh Hashanah is a very, very powerful day. That's why people don't sleep throughout the day. They don't take naps on the day of Rosh Hashanah because it's a head, just like the head of the body, right? So our body has many limbs, and, and if, God forbid, someone loses a finger, they're not going to die. It's not going to affect the rest of the body. But if, God forbid, someone receives a, gets a stroke in the, in the brain, it can shut down immediately half the body and, and have such a terrible impact because the head really affects the entire body. And that is what Rosh Hashanah is about. And not just Rosh Hashanah, but all the days following until the end of Sukkot. These are days which are the head of the month, controls not just the month, the year. 
and therefore we uh, we the whole idea of honey, dipping the apple in the honey, and all the different customs we do, eating from the head of the fish, and all that. It's all about you know setting ourselves up. Like we, you know, you ask someone if not someone's like a little grouchy, you say, "Did you set yourself up on? Uh, did you wake up on the right side of bed?" <laughs> and that's really what what you know the beginning of the year is. If someone's year year, if they're you know if it's not going well, how was the beginning of the year? And that's what Judaism is about. Judaism so is that it's not just a beginning, but it's a holy 48 hours and a holy a whole, whole stretch that really affects the year to come. Amazing. So what you're saying is if Rosh Hashanah is about starting the year and Yom Kippur is about sealing your existence in the year, right? and Sukkot is kind of like, and I don't mean to put this in such a surfer California way, but the vibe of the year. It's actually mentioned that the lulav looks like a sword, right? Especially when you have a very tall lulav and it's, you know, straight spine. It looks like a sword. And one of the things it symbolizes when the Torah tells us to take a lulav on the first day of Sukkot, that we're walking out victorious. After mm. our day of judgment, we won the court case. We're going to have a good year. Oh, I so love see, that. There are many connections between the holiday of Sukkot and the days before, the holidays, you know, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur different things so it's really a it's an extra joyous holiday although every holiday is joyous but this is extra joyous because you're coming after a very intense judgment and now you like there's no better feeling when you break your fast on Yom Kippur right right and then you just know like boom I have Sukkot ahead of me and that's that that is an added joy in this special holiday it's really really neat and you know it, before this year, I had never thought of Yom Kippur as a joyous holiday. It was always that holiday that, you know, when I was young, way, way younger, I resented because who doesn't, who, who doesn't love eating this one day I have to not right. eat, right? Now it has more meaning. Now I can add more joy to it, right? And then with Sukkot, there's now a whole different level of meaning now attaching it and connecting it to the high holidays. But why isn't Sukkot considered a high holiday if it's so connected? That's a good question. So there are actually three holidays in the Torah. Purim came later on through the rabbis. Uh, Hanukkah as well, even though Hanukkah is more popular, people know <laughs> about it more, more, I would say, well attended. Right. right? Um, <laughs> but uh, there are three holidays in the Torah that are that were back in the temple. They would, everyone would go up to Jerusalem. Many people still go to Israel these days. They travel to Israel to be there for Sukkot. Not necessarily for Yosh Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, but they go for Sukkot because that's one of the three holidays of the Torah. Um, it's actually a time of gathering. One of the names for the holiday of Sukkot, besides for Sukkot, is a time of gathering where they would bring all their crop that they worked so hard on. And and it's not like nowadays where, we, you know, we can just, if, if it doesn't rain, we have a hose, we can just water our plants. And the, back in the day, they really relied on God. We, they re, If it did not rain, they were in trouble. And, and at this time, when they would gather all the crops, bring it into the house, be able to enjoy their, their hard labor, you can imagine how joyous of a holiday it was. Because, you know, and, and together with that comes the important uh, fact how we have to be uh, grateful for God and know that all the grain, although I work so hard in, in plowing and planting and, and keeping an eye on it throughout the whole process, how, you know, where did it all come from? We have to acknowledge it came from God. 
So this holiday actually is very much connected to the time of gathering, where they would gather all the all, all their crop. And what was so beautiful is that the very best of their fruit will be given to God, which shows a very, very important lesson in life that when we work hard for something and we finally get the long awaited product and that, you know, the very first is like the, the first iPhone that comes out, right? They just so, sold the first iPhone 15, just went out, you know, one, you know, that's in the market now. So the very first iPhone is something to celebrate and special. Well, guess what? What if you give that very first iPhone 15 to God? What if you give, what does that mean? What if you give, you work so hard in your field and you bring that first batch that you were wor working so hard for and you bring it up to the temple and say, God, this is for you. What you're showing with that is you believe everything, all that, all the fruits and the vegetables and everything that you know your that your field brought out was really all a blessing from God. But doesn't that put Hashem on the cloud? No, I'm kidding. Um, the real question I want to ask <laughs> could help it. I'm sorry. the The real question I want to ask is, isn't that? I mean, like I understand that it's difficult, but my first impulse would not be to burn the very thing I just spent so much time working on. It, it wasn't burnt. It was actually given to the Kohen. To the Kohen. Yeah. Did, well, there, there the were different, different offerings that were the, the uh, animals that were burnt, and they weren't just. Most offerings were actually enjoyed, either by the by the Kohen, the priests in the temple, or by the person bringing the offering. And then there were different fruits which were either given to the Kohen to enjoy, because they are our representatives. Right, they okay. do the service for us instead of us having to do the service in the temple. The Kohen would would would, would be the one to do it, and uh, there were different batches of fruits which would be eaten by you yourself, but you would bring it up to Jerusalem to eat it there. And uh, yeah, with fruits, it wouldn't go to waste; it wouldn't be burnt. That was not something you found uh, with, with fruits. Okay, understood. Thank you for that clarification of what sacrifice means right um i guess i'm just confused what makes the kohanes so special in that situation like why they get first dibs basically on everyone's it, food they've worked so hard to work on that's a good question you know um th there were you know god looks at it as really every single person should be serving in the temple okay you know it's god's house and no one's more jewish than the other that was you know no such thing as a bad jew and no matter what level you're on right yeah right up there whatever level you're on we should be equally in charge of you know doing bringing the offerings and and doing all the regular daily practices in the temple so the fact that they are doing it for us is kind of we need to hire them to do it right we need to pay them to be able to be our representatives and do it in the in the temple for us we will do another episode in the future about the Kohanes because I I'm they are a group of our people that I want to learn more about. And I know they follow different customs and they have a different style of living even today than most Jews. And that part actually confuses me and why it's still relevant, even without a temple. Uh, it, it perplexes me. But that I want to make sure that we stay on topic with Sukkot because I could ask so many questions. Sure, yeah, let's, about. Go into, let's go back into Sukkot. Yeah, I know a major theme about Sukkot 
is about guests. Can you explain why guesting is so relevant to Sukkot and why it's relevant? That's a very good question. There's actually a movie called Uspisen, I believe. Okay. Uh, and it is, um, you know, what does the word Uspisen mean? It means guests. And every day of the uh, holiday, there are different guests that come starting from Abraham and to Isaac, Jacob, and so on. And um, actually in the Chabad community, there are added guests. And that is the seven Chabad actually nine in total the seven chabad rabbis plus the two rabbis that came before the founders of uh, Tov, who founded hasidism and his disciple which he considered like his own child which was the magid of mesrich um and then all seven chabad rabbis and the idea of these guests are that you know we're sitting in the sukkah we are enjoying our holiday dinner but guess who else is in, is enjoying and celebrating with us? There Hashem? are Hashem, but also very, very holy, righteous people. And each one has their connection to that day of the holiday. And um, it's it's it's, a, it's an, a beautiful concept where we are able to, just like by a Brit Milah, by, you know, a circumcision where we're told that Eliyahu Anavi, Elijah the prophet, is there. And that's why many people stop whatever they're doing to attend a Brit because Elijah's there. They want to get blessings and there's many great things said about it. So it's a great feeling knowing that you're sitting in a sukkah and you have a holy, a righteous person that is sitting there with you. And although, you know, we don't see them physically, but spiritually their presence is there. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So there's the literal guest. There's the, what, what's the word one, one more time for, for Uspizin. guests? Uspizin. Ushpizin, yeah. So there's the there's the literal Ushpizin, mm -hmm. but then there's a spiritual guesting as well. That is right. And it's is it is does that make the sukkah almost like a bridge between our physical world and a spiritual world? So you know, people walk into my sukkah and they sometimes they ask if they've been to other sukkahs before, they would ask. Uh, where are all the decorations? So I don't, my sukkah is not full of decorations and that's not the Chabad custom. Although we try to make it nice, but we don't decorate it with things like colorful things hanging from the, from the ceiling and different fruits. People have, have all these wild, beautiful ideas, but Chabad doesn't have any custom to decorate. Another thing, we don't sleep in the sukkah and many people are shocked to hear that. I'm shocked I mean, to hear that. Why? Right. Chabad doesn't sleep in the sukkah. What are the reasons for these two? You know, not decorating it, not not sleeping in the sukkah. Well, the answer is, as we just spoke before, the sukkah is a very holy place. To be more specific, uh, what makes a sukkah kosher? Although, um, you know, there's four sides to the sukkah, you technically only need three walls, or to be more specific, two and a half walls. To okay. make it a kosher sukkah. Okay. So if there's two walls and a little bit, and then you have the covering, that's good enough, and you fulfilled the mitzvah of sukkah. Now, take a look at your arm. You have one, then you got two, and then you have a little bit, your hand. Right? Right. So you have, right? One, two, and a little bit. Right. Okay. Amazing. What is and that representing God's arm? The sukkah is representing God's hug. 
And when we're sitting in the sukkah, we are being embraced by God himself. It's our intimate moment with God. And that is why, you know, when we sit in a sukkah, we don't decorate it because it has its own internal beauty. It has its own holiness. And, you know, they say, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. We don't want to mess with the holiness of the sukkah by bringing outside decorations. And together with that, we don't sleep in the sukkah because, again, it's a very holy space. And, you know, imagine you're, you know, you're in the presence of a king. How can you fall asleep? It's more of like you're not allowed. It's not that you're not allowed to sleep in the sukkah. It's just how do you sleep in the sukkah? You get it? Well, I mean, not to be literal, but couldn't you just lay out a sleeping bag and enjoy the stars under the sukkah? You, you technically could, but if you connect to the holiness of the sukkah and realize that you're right now in God's arms and you're right now in a very holy space, then you're going to watch what you say in the sukkah and you're going to also, it, it would be hard for you to just fall asleep in the presence of God. Right. Uh, so it's it's more of a spiritual concept and idea. Sure. And uh, and again, you're there's you know, people sleep in the sukkah. There's no sin of sleeping in the sukkah, but it's more like if you tap into what the sukkah is all about, and you realize that you're right now being embraced and hugged by God, and like we said, it it represents the clouds of glory that that, that protected the Jewish people. God protecting them when they left Egypt, and right now we are celebrating that same moment now in 2023 5784 so thinking that you are right now in god's cloud of glory and you're in god's arms and you're in god's presence it's the more you think about it the harder it is to just do your regular things and 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 um and and, and fall asleep is one of them you know what's interesting i wanted to point out so the mitzvah of sukkah you take a look in Halacha, in the Code of Jewish Law, and it tells you that um, it can't be above 20 cubits, it, which is around 20 feet, depending how much you call, you know, how many, is it a foot or a foot and a half, but around right. 20 feet. Okay. It cannot be taller than, your sukkah cannot be taller than 20 feet, because if it is above 20 feet, it's not considered temporary. It has to be a temporary structure, right? It has to be a hut. Now... Uh, a paradox we find is the fact that the, it, it tells us as well that whatever you do in your home, turn your sukkah into your house. Your house should be considered temporary. And throughout Sukkot, your sukkah is your home. You have Whoa. any nice dishes, bring your nice dishes into the sukkah. A nice table, nice bed sheets, whatever it is, bring them all into the sukkah. Make the sukkah your house. We have a paradox here. Is it temporary or is it? Permanent. Right, right. So, you know, on one hand, we tell you no more than 20 feet. We don't want you to uh, to make it, you know, permanent. But on the other hand, we're telling you, turn this into your office. Turn this into your bedroom. Turn it into your dining room. So it really is a bridge. The holiday is a bridge between what we typically consider permanent and the temporary. It really does act as a bridge in so many different ways. That's a really beautiful way to look at it. Right. So is everything solved? Does it make yeah. sense to you? Yeah, it's perfect. We can wrap the podcast. 
So you're 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 saying that temporary and permanent, no contradiction. It all no, there's to- tons of there's tons of contradiction, but it does make to me at least. Uh, I don't know about the listeners, but to me at least, what makes sense is the idea that the paradox exists for a temporary period of time, almost as if you have a open door elevator reaching the level it's supposed to be at, and then continuing on after that. Right. That, I mean, that's at least what makes sense to me. It seem, might seem silly, but I, I don't know. No, that's, Obviously, well there's there's contradictions. Well said. So let, let, let's take a, a beautiful lesson that the Rebbe learns from here okay. about this paradox that we find. One hand tem- temporary, one hand permanent. So, you know, in life, how do we make sure that we go about life and connect to what really brings us joy into our lives? Um, like for example, you know, it always feels good to drive a nice new car, um, to drive a Lamborghini, a Bentley driving down the streets of whatever, you know, Culver city or wherever you're at, you are at, you know, it's a good feeling and you're really living it up. Owning a mansion in the hills of Beverly Hills or wherever it is, you know, these are all good good uh, ways to really enjoy life and go finding a nice vacation and so on. So the question is really, is that what life is all about? Is life, was, did my soul come into the world to live it up, to really indulge and get so involved in the world and, and find every way how I can really enjoy every moment? So the answer is like this. It's not that living it up itself is could be any issue rather it's how you look at the materialism do you look at materialism as something permanent or temporary Mm. meaning to say like this imagine you're an american spy and you were sent to france to be an american spy in france and you got to learn the the language you got to learn the culture and you know the food and everything get really now years pass and one day you become so deeply involved that you completely forget about the fact that you're an american you forget your language you forget your culture right now would you say that's the right the proper way of being a, an american spy when you no. forget about your roots right no because the whole point is to remain connected deep inside and on the outside indulge in the French culture, language, and so on. Like, so no one would suspect. Now, take a look at the soul that comes down into the world. The soul came down on a mission to make the world a better place. It came from a place in heaven where materialism is trash. It's not of no interest. And it's right now on a mission like that American spy. And of course, it has to learn the language and the culture and get involved and indulge. And it can't just sit back and lock itself in a room of Torah and, and not engage in the world. It has to. It has to engage in the world because that is the only way it can really fulfill its mission. But is it looking at materialism as something permanent or as something temporary? And that's what the Rebbe teaches us with this lesson of Sukkot. In life... We should look at materialism as something temporary. Meaning to say, uh, driving a nice car, okay, enjoy life, live it up. But is that the reason you're living? 
Or is that only helping you to fulfill your mission of, you know, doing more mitzvahs and, and bringing God into the world and so on? So that is really what the sukkah teaches us. That we're taking what we may seem permanent and we're making it temporary. We're showing how it's really not our, 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 our full purpose, our true purpose. And, um, and also the whole idea of Sukkot uh, being at this time of year. So we mentioned in the beginning of the podcast that why do we sit in a sukkah? What is the holiday all about? When God took us out of Egypt, we sat in Sukkot, right? So shouldn't we be celebrating the Passover Seder, the four questions, eating matzah in a sukkah? We That'd be, be really cool. That, that's what should have made sense, right? If you know, if it's all about when God took us out of Egypt, and that's when He protected us, then really we should be building our sukkahs in April and having our seder in the sukkah. But, but, God wants us to fulfill the mitzvah for the sake of the mitzvah itself. And if we were to pull out our huts and start building huts in April when it's starting to get you know hot outside and the summer's coming. And our neighbor sees, oh, it's getting hot. He's He wants to chill out outside and enjoy the weather. But imagine in October, that's when you're pulling out your sukkah. Ralph's or whatever shopping center you're near, they stopped selling their summer equipment a while ago. They're pulling out their back-to-school equipment. And here you're pulling out your tent, your huts. It's starting to rain now. In New York, it, it was flooding. Uh, and now you're pulling out your huts? You must be doing it for some some strange reason and that's for for god's mitzvah itself and no other and that is part of the reason why we sit in the sukkah at this time of year where it has an added beauty to it that we are doing it specifically for god god himself and no no other side reasons i love it and that also does tie in with what it means to be a jew which is the struggle that is really what it means i think that's a really powerful note to end this incredible episode about what is the real story of Sukkot. So Rabbi Levy, thank you so much for being on this podcast. What's the best way for people to reach out to you? Great question. So um, our, we have a website called JewishCulverCity.com. Uh, you can see it on the bottom of the screen there. And you can also find us on Instagram at JewishCulverCity. Any message uh, will go straight to me or my wife, and we would be so happy to assist you with whatever we can, questions or Shabbat dinners, whatever it is. Amazing. And by the way, I love your Shabbat dinners. They're always a real treat, and I got to come back very soon. Rabbi Begun, thank you so much for being on this podcast, for giving us your time, for teaching us. I know you've done a huge mitzvah here, and uh, it just gets me more excited to celebrate Sukkot. So, Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach. I'm so thankful, Chaz, for the incredible work you are doing in educating people that there's no such thing as a bad Jew. And I appreciate you inviting me on and the opportunity to be able to share some thoughts about the holiday. Thank you as well. Till next time. Take care. Shalom.